Can you really be that stupid? What are you talking about? Where were you last night? I was out with the guys. Why? Well, because you didn't even tell me. You just didn't come home from work. I don't think I have to read. I told you to take your allergy medicines. You're not sleeping at night. You're snoring all the time. They're asking me a thousand. I don't ever do myself. You know, I'm busy out there trying to make room and do your homework. Don't talk to myself. You go ahead and work. I'll talk to him. Why you're not doing it? We need to grow up. So we really just need to sit down now. You just act like such a baby all the time. It just needs to get better. This is why you need to get up there. Boy, it's six in the morning. I just need to get back to sleep. No, no, I'm the man of the house, and I get to sleep. I'm telling you what I mean. You don't understand, but you're not paying attention. You don't listen. You're on your phone. You're working. You're distracted. Behind closed doors, uh, this new series that we're beginning. But you may wonder, how did we get there? Well, used to, you would gather your local news at the pub downtown or perhaps over breakfast at a local diner. You would gather and you would talk and you would stay updated with all the local happenings. And then one day, a little kid mounted a bike and he decided that he was going to earn a, a couple of cents an hour. And he started throwing out something into the lawn where you could actually leave your house and you could just go and gather it at your convenience. Whenever it was that you wanted to finally open that newspaper and kick back in your recliner. Well, today, you don't have to leave your house at all. There's no need for a boy riding a bike, throwing out a paper at your convenience. Now, everything you have is at your disposal, at your fingertips in a mere second. But think about that. How did we get there? Because it was really a, a slow fade of sorts. It was an evolving over time. I mean, used to, even if you wanted to gather in your living room to have heat, you would have to get around a fireplace. And you would stay there and you would huddle up. And in order for you to stay warm on a cold winter's night, you had to gather in that one location in the house. Even if you wanted to be isolated and you wanted to be disconnected, in order for your, your, your warmth and the purpose of you staying in a place where you felt sane, you would have to gather over that fireplace. But now we live in a day and age where even behind the closed door, that painted door of your pretty home, you have another door in which is painted that you can guard yourself behind and now air is piped right on into you. You've got heat and you've got coolness at your convenience. And so now we live in a day and age where we're autonomous. We happen to believe that we can live our life on our own, that we're okay being disconnected from everything. Why? Because at our disposal is the connection that we think is better than any connection we've ever had, and that is at our fingertips. The crazy thing is, though, is that in the midst of all the connections that we live in, I think we can make a case that our world is more isolated and more disconnected than ever before. The trouble is, is that sometimes I think we want to avoid it. In 1970, there was a sociologist named Philip Slater, and Philip Slater wrote the book called The Pursuit of Loneliness. And he coined this sociological phrase called the toilet assumption. And the toilet assumption simply means that if there is a social happening or some social awareness around you, that you could actually avoid it if you just chose in your mind to forget it. So if you just avoided the reality of loneliness around you, then it, you really actually wouldn't be lonely. See, I totally disagree. Matter of fact, I want you to realize that our isolation is there for a reason. And so if you're joining us for the very first time here on our uh, Stone Point campus or Wills Point, or perhaps maybe you're joining us right now uh, at our Edgewood campus or online, I want you to realize that the loneliness we face is actually something that happened a long, long time ago. 
It's not because cell phones have evolved. It's not because the little boy is not riding his bike, throwing a newspaper at your convenience anymore. It's not because you don't gather at the local pub. It's not because somehow our world's evolving at a fast pace. No, it's another dilemma. And we'll talk about that by the end of the day today. See, here's what I want you to realize. I want you to realize that isolation is happening to all of us. See, we think that isolation is is something that's caused on us. And and actually, it may not be something that is caused, but it may be something that we've caused. So let me explain. Isolation, I think, happens to three different types of people in this room. I think isolation comes, one, as just a result of some of our circumstances. I mean, think about it for just a second. Like some of you in here, you feel isolated in, in this moment, even today in your life, as you sit behind the closed door of your home. And that's simply because you've recently become a widower. I mean, recently you've experienced death of some sort, and it's brought just a a darkness to your life that you haven't ever experienced. For some of you, you, you're single, and and you long so badly to be married, and so you you just are, you're you're lonely. You you just go, I'm the only one in the world that's single, and you feel like that, like it's just bearing down on you. For some of you, you're new for the very first time today, and honestly, you're a little bit lonely and isolated in this. Like, isn't it awkward sometimes being new to a new place? Like, you're wondering, are they going to talk to me? Are they going to like me? Are they going to judge me when I walk in? I mean, there's people that even right now, you're about to start a new job, and that is one of the greatest fears you have, is you're going to be isolated. You're the new guy at work. For some of you, you're not the new guy at work, but you're the guy who travels. You're the guy who seals business deals all across the country, and so night after night, you sit in a hotel room by yourself, and you go, I just wish I could do something different. For some of you in this room, you're isolated because you're a single mom, and you just go, I- I'm here, uh, and I wish I wasn't, and you wish that you could change that. For some of you, you're not a single mom, but you feel like one because you're a stay-at-home mom, and you go, the only connection I have during a day is when somebody calls, and, and like that, that brief five-minute conversation is just like manna from heaven, right? Because you're like, the only conversation I have was with a two-year-old, and, and it's just babbling, and, and I just wish it would stop just for a few moments. <laughs> and then that call comes, and it's five minutes, and here's what's ironic about it is somebody from Stone Point Church saying, hey, do you mind serving this Sunday in Stone Point Kids? <laughs> and you're just like, will it ever end? But hey, before you get off the phone, we just talk, because it's just the first adult conversation I've had this week that's meaningful. And you just feel isolated in that. See, isolation comes sometimes as a result of our circumstances. I mean, there's some of you that you're facing down illness, and you just go, I'm alone. For some of you, your mobility has changed, like your health has declined. You can't do the things you used to do, and you just go, I'm alone, and I just wish my circumstances would change. And I think time and time and time again, we continue to pray, God, would you change my circumstances? God, would you just get me out of this? But I'm convinced that I think sometimes we face isolation in our circumstances so that God could teach us much in the midst of our isolation in our circumstances. I mean, really, that's the classic case of Job. If you remember, Job was a guy who was isolated in the circumstances. I mean, God was challenged by the accuser, Diablos, Satan. And Satan goes to God and he says, hey, there is no one on the face of the earth that will love you if you took away all the pleasures that you give them. Like, if you just took away all the things they worship you for, then guess what? They wouldn't worship you anymore. And so the Spirit of the Lord roams to and fro, and he looks for one, and he lands on Job. And God says, no, there is one faithful, and he'll be faithful despite what circumstances come into his life. And Job would be afflicted, wouldn't he? 
I mean, he would lose everything, his family, his livestock, his wealth. I mean, at one point, his wife even says, Job, I don't understand why you worship God. Why don't you just, why don't you just curse God and die? Like, I don't know about you, but to be married and to have a wife that says that and to be afflicted in that way, I think that's isolation in circumstances. All of Job's friends bailed on him. I mean, they even got to the point, they said, Job, the reason that you're in this tumultuous time in the circumstances that you're in is simply because you're a sinner and you've sinned against God some way that you're not confessing. And do you imagine the, the resentment and the anger that boiled in Job? But listen, Job, Job was isolated simply because of his circumstances. And sometimes circumstances happen in our life and sin didn't even cause them. But in the midst of the circumstance, God says, I still want to reveal something to you. Instead of you praying that God would change your circumstances, what if God changed you in the midst of those circumstances? See, you don't just have the classic tale of Job. You you got other tales in the story. Like sometimes I think we're isolated because of our, our sin and our disobedience. So it's not just merely circumstances. Sometimes we're on an island, feel like we're alone because of the choices we've made. Like some of us in this room, like we feel isolated and alone, but it's merely because we've been making lots of poor decisions. And we look and we're alone in our substance abuse. We look and we're alone in in our drunken state. We wonder why no one's around. And, And I get that they were around in your drunken state as you laughed and you talked over a campfire. But that next morning when everything that was once numb and void has now begun to fade away and you're curled up in your bathroom hovering over a toilet, you look around and you go, why Why is there no one to hold my hair back? Why am I alone here? And in your sin, you go, there's no one present. I mean, isn't that the case in a loveless marriage? Like you're married, it's two people behind closed doors, but you know things aren't right. And in your selfishness and in your deceit and in your pride and in your arrogance, in some cases, in the infidelity, you look up and you go, I'm alone and I feel like I'm abandoned and I am here and I put on a nice face and I somehow manage to get to the church and everybody will ask me, how are you doing today? And my answer is always the same, I'm good, but I'm not good because in my sin and in my problems, I'm disconnected and I'm isolated and I feel alone. Isn't that the classic case of a guy named David? I mean, you, you've got David, this incredible story that you would see throughout the scripture. In 2 Samuel 11, you remember? He, he is in a place where all kings have gone off to war. David should have been at war, and he decided that he was going to stay home. And as he stayed behind, he decided that one day, while all of his men were off at war, putting their lives at risk, he was going to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so he gets up on his balcony. He sees this beautiful woman on her rooftop bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. He summons for her, she comes, he lays with her, she conceives, and she is going to bear a child. But as a result of him being in isolation, trying to cover up everything, he brings more people into the the problem, right? And so he goes and he summons for her husband, who's out on the battlefield, where he should be. And he summons Uriah the Hittite, and he says, Uriah, come, man, I want to give you a little bit of a break from your time at war. I want to give you the opportunity to lay with your wife, trying to cover up, trying to mask the pain. And Uriah refuses. He goes, I'm I'm not going to enjoy my wife when all these other men are laying their lives down on the line. And so he sleeps outside and decides not to go in and enjoy the pleasure of sex with his wife. And then guess what? David goes, I've got a problem here. And so he summons for Uriah to come into the palace and he does everything he can to try to mask his pain and to what? Somehow get 
his buddy to jump in. And so Uriah uh, drinks and consumes lots of alcohol. And apparently as he's stumbling out the door, David makes one last plea. Hey, why don't you go home and enjoy your wife? Trying to numb it all, Uriah goes home and he sleeps again at the door. David, knowing I've done all I could do, I have tried to deceive this man, I have tried to cover up and mask my pain, all the isolation, he takes Uriah and he sends him with a letter back to the generals in the uh, Israelite army. They send him to the very front lines, they pull away, he's killed, and David looks like he has been rescued. But what you don't know is that for nine plus months, David sits in isolation and in pain until one day he's confronted by his friend Nathan but he has been alone and isolated in his disobedience like many of us in this room. And see, it's not just your circumstances, it's not just your obedience, but I'll tell you, I think sometimes it's your obedience that isolates you. I mean, have you ever thought about you you being the single girl and you look at the dating scene around you and you realize that every other girl has a man, but what is she having to give up to keep him? I mean, she's masking her pain with love, and love includes sin. And sin what, is what? Masking what? More pain. But actually, it's creating more. And so to, to live in this culture, is it possible that you could be a woman or a man in this culture and maintain purity? I'll tell you, you would be, you would be lonely, wouldn't you? You'd be isolated somewhat alone there. Because here's the deal. Even in leadership, Sometimes it's a lonely place. You are trying to call people to excellence and you seem to be the only one. You're kind of the lone ranger of sorts. You're the one living a pure life. You're the one trying to be faithful, trying to encourage people to do what you should, what, encourage them to do. See, sometimes it's not just circumstances. Sometimes it's not, sometimes it's not just sin. Sometimes it's just you being obedient. Kelly and I are going to re-engage, which is uh, kind of reconnecting, rekindling your marriage. And I remember we're having our group talk one night, and Kelly is a faithful woman, walking in obedience to the Lord. But then she goes, have you ever thought about what it's like to be Brandon's wife? She goes, you know how lonely that can be? She said, think about it for just a second. He is the hero of so many narratives. You call him and he comes. And when he's coming in the midst of your chaos, he's creating chaos in our home. Have you ever heard of all the accolades, of all the sermons he's preached, of all the things that he's been taught time and time and time and good? Man, that was really awesome. Hey, Brandon, really thank you for leading our church. Hey, Brandon, you're you're really a great pastor. And he goes, she goes, I just sit in the wings. And she feels what? Isolated. And she feels alone. And see, here's what I want you to realize. We have believed a lie. And here's the lie. You think that isolation comes only when you're alone. And so what you think is, is that I wouldn't be isolated if I had what? More friends. Like there are some of you today and you came into this place and you go, I came to church because we're looking for more friends. We're looking for more people to kind of hang out with because you think somehow that would change your circumstances or somehow that might change your sin pattern or somehow that might make you more obedient. But I'll tell you, in obedience, you can be lonely. In disobedience, you can be lonely. And sometimes it's neither disobedience or obedience. Sometimes your circumstances just plain stink. And you would love to rely on the toilet assumption, right? Right? But you can pretend it doesn't exist, but you just go, I'm lonely. So here's the question. Let me ask you this. If you're in this room and you would say, 
in the last six months, there has been a time in my life where I have just felt lonely. Alone as a widow in my circumstances, alone as a single mom, alone as the new guy at work, alone as the new person at this big old place called Stone Point. I couldn't even find a parking spot today, and I would just feel lonely. And it was confusing. And I'm alone in my sin. I woke up just this morning, and I was hung over, but I thought I would come because maybe something would help me in my, my moral dilemma. How many of you in here, you'd go, I- I've been lonely in the last six months in one form or another. See, here's what's crazy. Here's the crazy thing, is that in our loneliness, we think we're the only one that's lonely, right? Like, we're the only one in the world that's a single mom. We're the only one right now that's a stay-at-home mom. We're the only one being faithful to the cause of the Lord. Well, listen, that's not always the case. Even Jeremiah was faithful, and in his obedience to God, he felt alone. Jeremiah was 17 when he was called to uh, usher in the, the good news to the people of Israel that they were disobedient, that God was going to come in, he was going to plummet and kill them all, and he was going to destroy them. And I'll tell you, as a 17-year-old preaching that message to a bunch of hardened hearts, you are not popular for very long. And so as he begins to share that message, he does this for 40 years, 40 years without any converts, 40 years of ministry with no fruit. I mean, we've been in this for seven years, and we've seen... 300 plus people come to faith in Jesus. I mean, we've seen hundreds of lives changed. Like that, you go, wow, that's worth getting up for in the morning. But could you just imagine trying to, to preach a word day in and day out and your audience is nothing? One, and you preach with all your heart and you go and, you, and in your obedience, nobody listens. See, the thing is, is this, is that even if hundreds of people would have showed up to hear Jeremiah preach, he would have still been lonely because people don't fix loneliness. They just don't. And you go, well, no, maybe it's not people. Maybe it's not people. Maybe it's better people. Like if I just had one person come into my life, if they just knew my love language, then it'd probably fix it all, right? No, 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 no. The quality of friends does not fix it either. See, you got to realize that there's isolation for a reason, and here it is. You ready for it? I know you've been waiting for this moment all morning, right? The reason you and I face isolation is because it's a result of the human condition. It is a deeper problem than you and I can assume away. It is a deeper problem than a handful of good friends It's a deeper problem than a change in circumstances. It's a deeper problem than if I quit drinking or smoking or doing all of those things or having sex out of marriage. It's a deeper problem than your commitment to Jesus like Jeremiah. It is a problem of the human condition. I think Romans 5 kind of gives us a pretty good indication of what that looks like. In Romans chapter 5, it just simply says this in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Our loneliness is a spiritual dilemma. Matter of fact, think about it for just a second. If, you, if this takes you back and you go, okay, I get it. Sin came into the world through one man. You remember that one man? That was Adam and his wife Eve. And so because it came through them, it is passed down, down, this curse of sin. And you've inherited it time and time and time and time again. And so the reason that your life is jacked up is not just because of your circumstances, your disobedience, or because of your obedience. Your life is jacked up because of a guy named Adam and Eve. And you can thank them for it every day. 
But go back, to the, go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, think about it for just a second. Do you remember that they didn't approach God in their sin? Like, but God shows up in the Garden of Eden, and he goes, Hey, Adam, hey, Eve, where are you? And every time that we have the result of isolation because of our spiritual condition, we are prone to go do what? Hide. You go, no, I don't really know that it's true. Well, that's what Cain and Abel, that happened too. Hey, Cain, where are you? Am I my brother's keeper? God, time and time and time again is saying, where are you? Hey, where are you? And we have masked it for a variety of reasons as we hide behind painted doors saying, you know what? I don't need the world. I'm autonomous. I can survive on my own. I'm okay. No, you're not. And it doesn't matter if it's a loveless marriage or if it's obedience like the prophet Jeremiah. It could be like you're a Paul and a Silas praising God in the midst of a jail. You're still isolated. And in that dilemma, we need to realize that it happened in Genesis 3. And so he goes, Adam and Eve, where are you? God, we're hiding because they were naked and ashamed is what the scripture tells us. For the very first time, their eyes were illumined and they could see. And they didn't see like God sees. They saw the exact nature of their sin problem and they hide because now it's all exposed. And if it's exposed, then what, what is God going to think of me? And what would others in that environment, what, what would they have, thought they have thought about the disobedience of Adam? I mean, really, it was one simple command, wasn't it? One prohibition. Hey, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is yours. Enjoy it. And then they're deceived. They give way to sin. And because of that, there are consequences. And the consequences are as this. Hey, Adam and Eve, you will now enjoy the fruit of your labor. And the fruit of your labor now is this, that your wife will have labor pains. You will toil and labor at a work and you will not enjoy it. You will have enmity between man and woman and your woman will desire to usurp your authority as a husband, as the leader of the home, and you will have a budding of heads. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 7, if you wish to marry, that's fine, you will have problems. And that is a fact. And it is because of a Genesis 3 curse. And then he says, and there's one more thing. You were booted out of the Garden of Eden. You will come no more. The seraphim and the angels close the doors, but he goes, and you will experience death and you will live no more the way that I intend you to live. And so every human will not just die a physical death, but the greatest thing is that you will be separated in isolation from a holy God because of a human condition. And it will pass down from generation to generation. But here's the great thing, is that God does something even in our isolation. He reminds us that we don't have to be foolish. But Proverbs 18.1, as I'm reading through Proverbs this week, I stumbled across this in the middle of all of my planning, and it just simply says this. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So what, what does it mean? He goes, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He goes, you don't choose isolation. That's not, what the, that's not what the verse means. It's not like, hey, whoever's dumb chooses isolation. Whoever's dumb stays behind closed doors. No, 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 that's not what it means. Look at it. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Here's what it shows us. It shows us that the reason that we have the dilemma in loveless marriages the reason that we fight and quarrel in our relationship, the reason we don't like our boss and he didn't like us is ultimately because we do what's right in our own lives, right? And in our own eyes. It, it is the James 4, 1 and 2 problem. What causes fights and quarrels among you? 
Do you know what it is? It is the selfishness that is waging war in your soul. It is the isolation problem that has been caused as a result of the human condition called sin. But here's the good news. In our isolation, God desires to reveal a deeper understanding of himself. So while you feel isolated because of your circumstances, because of your disobedience, or perhaps because you are such a faithful saint in your obedience, God says, even still, I want to show you who I am. I want to reveal myself to you. Isn't that why he approaches Adam and Eve and goes, hey, where are you? Hey, Cain, where are you? He always, time and time and time again, is revealing our need. In Psalm chapter 46, the sons of Korah, these choir masters under the king of Israel, David, they, they, they write this, uh, this psalm. They, they pen it as a hymn to sing. But I want you to see as they talk about the faithfulness of God in our dilemmas. In verse 1, it just says, our God is our refuge and our strength. He is our very present help in times of trouble. The question is, do you believe that? In your isolation, behind closed doors, when no one else is walk, watching, when no one else understands your pain, the question is, is, has it revealed a deeper need and an understanding for God? Are you saying, God, I need your strength. God, I need you to be very present in my distress and my times of trouble. Is that what you're getting from your isolation? Because I want you to hear this. Most people in our isolation don't call for God. We call for more friends and better friends. I can't believe that the church didn't help me meet more people. More people is not the solution to your problem. The solution to your problem is a deeper understanding of a revelation of God to you in your problem. And he goes, I desire to be an ever-present help in your time of need. Verse 2, the, the, the sons of Korah, they write, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. And it's a reminder of Psalm 23. We, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we shall fear no evil. Why? Because my friends are with me. No, for thy rod and thy staff bring me comfort. It is this idea that God is with us. Verse 3 says, though the waters roar and foam, the mountains tremble and it's swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. Verse 5 says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when her morning dawns. There are new mercies every day when you are in distress because God provides that. Do you see that? Verse seven, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I mean, in battles, in distress, God is with us. Hey, eight says, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease and the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then you get this incredible verse that most of us as Americans have no idea what it's talking about. It says, be still and know that I am God. And we think, hey, in, in the midst of our problems, as we're sitting in isolation behind closed doors, what we really need is just a good chair, a nice little fire, and a warm cup of coffee. And we just need our Bible study, and we just need to be calm, and we just need to be still, and we just need our Bible time. And we just need our kids to go away, and I just need to enjoy my time for 15 minutes in the Word. No, 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 no. It is not talking about just be still in silence. That's not what it means at all. What it means is, as a nation in Israel, under their distress, when they turned to foreign gods, when they turned to the help of the Assyrians or the Egyptians, and God was going to mow them down, he goes, you can turn to them or you can turn to me. It's your choice. I'll be the ever-present God in times of trouble. 
I'm the one that can bring a river that makes glad the city of God. I can be the one that in your distress, or you can turn to whatever you want. But if you would like to meet me in your isolation and in your spiritual dilemma, you should know that you should be still and know that I am God. And the idea is this, is that you would no longer try to fight the battle on your own. It's the idea that you would lay down your bow and your spear, that you don't have a weapon that will, what, come against God. There is no weapon that will prevail against the holy God. And so he goes, you have a choice. You can continue to go through this life with your weapons, with your own defense system, or you can just lay it all down. And you can just put your weapons down and you can surrender. And here's the awesome thing. A few years ago, I showed you a universal sign for surrender. It doesn't matter if you are red, black, yellow, white, or purple. It doesn't matter where you came from. This is surrender. And when you finally throw up your hands and in your times of isolation, you go, God, I need you. I want to be still and I want to know that you are God. And you just say, I give you my isolation, my terrible circumstances. God, I give you my disobedience, my sin that has so easily entangled me. It has kept me from running the race that you want me to run. God, I lay that down right here before you. God, I thought that I was arrogant and proud because of my obedience. Somehow I thought that other people were less than myself. And so God, I just lay down my life right here before you. That's what God wants. That's a deeper understanding and a revelation of God. And here's why. If God is allowed by you to reveal himself, this is what he'll do. You ready for this? He will awaken your soul to the good news of God. He will awaken you. He will give you all that you need. And I think for so many of us in here, as we look at this, this third thing that God desires to illumine and awaken your soul in the midst of your isolation, that is why God came. That is why he is here. And you go, well, did he really do that? Oh, you remember Job in the midst of his circumstances? They were kind of terrible. You remember that? Look at what Job prays after all of endurance all of these things. In, in, in Job chapter 42, verses one through six, as Job answers the Lord after this conversation, he just simply says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things that were too wonderful for me for which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I heard you by hearing the ear, but now my eyes see. You, oh God. Job goes, I, all I saw was my circumstances. All I saw was my friends bailing out. All I can remember is my wife said, curse God and die. I, all I remember is leaving, losing everything. I mean, in a moment's notice, my kids were gone. My livestock was gone. My life as I knew is gone. I sat pleading with you in boils and, and I, my life is just desolate and I'm alone and there's no friends. And even when I have friends, they tell me how horrible I am and I'm a sinner and God, I have no idea, but now I see God, you were with me. And that even in my circumstances, God, you were there. And I thought that I had the eyes to see like you see, but now I know that you have revealed things clearly. And he begins to thank God for it. Matter of fact, in verse six, this is what it says. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job goes, I'm sorry, God. I thought that I wasn't alone but I realize that I'm not and that I should repent for that. You remember Jeremiah, Jeremiah in his isolation because he was obedient. 
I mean, he was a 17-year-old called, called by God to be obedient, to preach against the nation of Israel. He does so. They hate him. He hates preaching it. He's alone. He's confused. Uh, they, he is literally the, the weeping prophet because he spent so much time in tears and, and agony about having to preach this gospel and no one would listen. Finally, in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 18, he goes, God, why is this pain unending? God, why is it that you uh, have given me a wound that cannot be healed? God, I do not understand. You are like a brook that I cannot find. Like, God, I don't even know what you're doing. And in verse 19, the Lord replies, if you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. In one case, Jeremiah says, God, you're a spring that fails. And then the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the God, the everlasting God, the creator of all things goes, listen, I am a brook that does not fail and I will restore you. And if you turn to me in your isolation and in your darkness, I know you don't feel like you have friends, but I am a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And then you just think about your disobedience. You, you remember David and his disobedience? For nine plus months until the Nathan the prophet goes, hey, David, you're in sin, dude. You need to repent. He was alone, isolated in his sin. He loses the son in which Bathsheba conceives because of the sin. He feels afraid and alone. And then finally, in Psalm 51, he repents. And you get to see this incredible prayer. And look at it in Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12. You got David, he, he just pleads. He goes, God created me a clean heart, O God. Renew the right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And listen, he doesn't say, hey, God, return to me the joy of my salvation. That's not what he says because you and I don't have our own salvation. He goes, return to me the joy of your salvation. See, God is the one who meets us in our dark, dark and tumultuous times. God is the one who provides restoration and salvation. Now, here's what's so interesting about this. You and I, as Americans, we have this notion in our mind that we are the heroes of our story. That if somehow we can just break the chains of the isolation behind our pretty painted front door, if we could just break out of it, if we could just get somebody to, to, to give us some medication, if we just kind of pop out of this, if somehow we can meet another man, if somehow we can find that wonderful woman, if somehow we can just get things to change. The deal is this, things in your life may never change. But even if they don't, as long as you're the hero of your story, God can never meet you. So God is saying, no, I can be the hero of the story. If you'll throw up your hands and surrender, then I am willing to swoop in and I am willing to bring salvation. I'm really to bring a clean heart and a renewed mind and a steadfast spirit. And it would be my pleasure to pull you out of the muck and the mire. Because if you continue to believe that you can somehow turn over a new leaf, that somehow you can change the narrative, then you're wrong. And you'll beat your head in a loveless marriage until you finally cave in and say, I can live with this contentious woman no more. I can no longer live with this drunken, angry man. I can no longer live with this 
angry, bitter, cynical guy. You can if you have the perfect husband. And the perfect husband is Jesus who's dying to swoop in and save his church and is dying to give you peace and everlasting contentment and willing to give you hope for the pain. The question is, is will you allow him to swoop in and save? I think Augustine said it right when he said, our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in thee. And the question is, what do you find your rest in? Here's what I'm saying. Ultimately, all relational problems, everyone, from your boss to your children, to your coworkers, to your husband, to your spouse, to even friends within the church, every problem is rooted in a spiritual dilemma. And every cause of isolation is a spiritual issue. And without the healing of Christ, sin will continue to cause erosion, chaos, and problems in every relationship we have until we finally find the fulfilling hope of a stream that gives life and water. Isn't that what Jesus meant when he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes and dines with me will never hunger again. Hey, I am like streams of living water. Whoever drinks of this water will never thirst again. God desires to be the rescue and the redeemer for a deceitful heart rooted in a sin problem that started way before you. And he is the freedom that we need. And my prayer is today that whether you're here for the very first time and you're lonely or you've been here for seven years since the beginning and you go, I am lonely, that God will reveal himself to you in a fresh and new way. And here's my greatest prayer. And my prayer is that I would see it come to fruition this morning. My prayer is, is that the vulnerability in this place would increase. And here's why. As I was going through my re-engage book with my wife last week, the, the Lord basically um, had challenged us through just that program to write down some areas that were like kind of sin problems, patterns for me, right? And so it just kind of lists some different areas where I maybe didn't love the way that I should have. And so I'm just kind of writing some things down and all of these things. And then I go into my, my step group and I'm like, I'm Pastor Brandon, right? Like I don't have any sin problems or patterns, right? Like, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that's not true because I'm constantly confessing, right? And so I just go in and I just confess some areas of just where I'm, I'm quick to anger. Like, I, I'm, I'm not quick to listen, slow to speak. I, I'm not slow to become angry. Sometimes I'm, I'm quick. Sometimes I'm quick just to, to say a, a word that's not encouraging. Sometimes it's not even the words I say. I wrote down in my book, sometimes it's just my face. Like, my face says everything about me. And so you can see really quickly like what I'm thinking. And so as, I, as I'm just thinking through all of these things, one of the things I wrote back down is, is this, like, Lord, my prayer is that even as I confess to some of these people that I don't know very well, I pray that my vulnerability would increase my need for you. And that's what I wrote down in my book. See, our vulnerability reminds us that we're not alone and that the best life that God has for us as we endure our challenges and our hardships is not to do life behind a closed door. 
And I'll tell you, I am a man in here that is prideful and arrogant, and I would love for you to think that I'm the perfect husband. But unfortunately, the Bible tells me that there's not one other than Jesus. And so the best thing for me to live the way that God has called me to live as your pastor is to constantly remind you that I am the foremost of sinners, as Paul puts it. That I am the one who oftentimes struggles to be the husband that is encouraging to his wife, that I oftentimes am the pastor that can be judgmental or proud or arrogant, that I'm the guy sometimes who is isolated because I think, God, maybe I'm the only one obedient in Van Zandt County. And how arrogant for me to think as I stumble in my own pridefulness. And so my prayer is that our vulnerability would increase in this room so that God's ability to meet us where we are will increase in this room. And what I mean by that is this, we're about to be dismissed to have a fantastic week of worship. And as you're walking out the door, somebody's gonna go, hey, John, how are you? Oh, I'm great, man, I'm great. Hey, Sam, how are you? Oh, I'm great, I'm wonderful. Hey, Becky, how are you? Oh, I'm, I'm awesome, it's been, oh, it's so blessed. Really? As you go through re-engage tonight and you talk about your loveless marriage and about your husband who is what? <clears throat> Distorted and wrapped up in his sexual desires. So that's where the church comes alive. Is when we go, I messed up. But I've met the God who brings restoration and healing in my circumstances, in my illness in my loveless marriage, in my sin problem, in my disobedience, and even in my obedience. God is our ever-present help in times of trouble. Will you lay down your weapons and come to the God who says, no weapon will prevail against me? Amen? We pray for us, church. God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts. God, I know that I am... Uh, a sin problem waiting to happen. God, I am a contentious man. I am a man that is prone to be selfish, as James 4 tells us. But God, I know that I also become more vulnerable and I allow my heart to become more encouraged when people share their struggles because I feel less alone in mine. And God, what would it look like if we just had some conversations this morning about some of our sin patterns, about some of our struggles? God, what would we confess that how hard it is to live in obedience to you? What would it have been like to be a guy like Stephen who's being stoned alone? And the only person there for him was you as you stood off your throne for this man in his obedience. God, I pray that in our pain and in our isolation that we would choose to obey you. The God that we would choose to be satisfied with the lot in life that you've given us, that even in our cancer right now, that we would be satisfied because perhaps maybe you want to interrupt our life just so that we would see you clearly. God, what if in this loveless marriage, I decided to be satisfied just so the fact that my husband or my wife could see that you are the perfect bride. God, what would it look like if we were thankful for the way that you made us, even in our affliction, even in all of our brokenness, even in our limp, even in our learning disability, even in the fact that we don't know how to read, 
Even the fact that we wake up in the morning, we don't like what we look like. God, what if we were just thankful for the way you made us? God, what if we accepted the love and the forgiveness and the peace and the joy and the fellowship of knowing Jesus? And what if we quit pretending that life was better alone behind closed doors? What if we quit masking our pain and we just longed to see us the way you see us? And so, God, would you create in us a clean heart and a steadfast spirit? God, would you return to many of us the joy of your salvation? And for many others in this room, I pray they would have a willing spirit to enjoy your salvation for the very first time. You are a brook that is found and a spring that never fails. And so, God, we thank you and we plead with you that you would be with us even in our darkest days. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen. Amen.